0: 1919, Strikes, Struggles and Soviets Janine Booth, A Workers' Liberty Pamphlet January 2019 Blurb, 2019 is the centenary of the year in which British workers had probably their greatest opportunity to make a revolution. Inspired by the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, British workers took more strike action than ever before, servicemen and police mutinied, and Labour took strides forward electorally. But Communists in Britain had still not formed the United Party. Labour's representation in Parliament was unfairly small and politically rubbish, and the trade unions were still dominated by bureaucrats. There were similar workers' mobilisations around Europe, rebellions in the British and other empires' colonies, and Soviet republics declared, in Bavaria, Hungary and elsewhere, all in the end defeated, but only in the end. Published to mark the centenary, This pamphlet tells the story of 1919, encouraging readers to imagine workers' revolution, to consider the consequences of settling for less, and to recognize the missing link, an organization of revolutionaries. End of blurb. Written by Janine Booth using articles by Stan Crook, Michael Farrell, John Cunningham, and Rainer Lysart. Longer, more detailed versions of these articles are online at www workersliberty.org slash 1919 For tweets recalling events as they happened day by day follow at OTD1919 Quote The year 1919 The entire structure of European imperialism tottered under the blows of the greatest mass struggles of the proletariat in history We daily expected the news of the proclamation of the Soviet Republic in Germany, France England, in Italy, the bourgeoisie was at its wit's end. The year 1919 was the most critical year in the history of the European bourgeoisie. What were the premises for the proletarian revolution? The productive forces were fully mature, so were the class relations. Lacking was an organisation at the head of the proletariat, capable of utilising the situation for nothing else but the direct organisational and technical preparation of an uprising, of the overturn the seizure of power, and so forth. This is what was lacking. End quote. Leon Trotsky, the first five years of the Communist International. Ready for rebellion. As 1919 began, working class people in Britain looked forward to leaving the Great War behind them and rebuilding their lives. They expected a better society than the one they had endured before the war. Their Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, had promised a land fit for heroes to live in, and had just led his Tory-dominated coalition to a landslide victory in a general election called at short notice to cash in on armistice euphoria. But Labour had polled well in that election, and was growing stronger. Trade unionists were ready to resume their great unrest, the wave of strikes for better wages and conditions that had begun in 1911, and paused when war started in August 1914. Workplace activists gained confidence during the war, from pursuing industrial struggles when their union leaders had refused to. But Labour's 20% of the vote had had won it just 8% of Parliament seats, and the 57 Labour MPs were mostly Conservative Union officials, committed more to maintaining respectability than to advancing working-class interests. Lloyd George had promised much as he wooed Britain's new working-class voters in 1918, but before long, in the words of Communist Wal Hannington, His slogans and soundbites, quote, rang like bitter mockery in the ears of the men who had come from the bloody battlefields only to be cast onto the industrial scrap heap of capitalism and to see increasing privation for themselves and their families, end quote. The year ahead would see a huge wave of working class struggles in Britain and around the world. There were mutinies by soldiers, strikes by workers and rebellions in colonies. There were even places where the working class rose to political power but in all but one case that power was brutally defeated by the old order and the one exception, Russia, was isolated, invaded and starved. Workers won victories as well as suffering defeats but did not overthrow the oppressive system they lived under and create a better one. Could they have won more? What went right and what went wrong? What does the experience of 1919 tell us about our struggles and our prospects in 2019? In this poem, published in the Herald on the 4th of January 1919, soldier poet Siegfried Sassoon recalls the electoral defeat of the previous month and looks forward to future success. To Those Who Fight for Labour by Siegfried Sassoon Now when the shouting and the strife are ended and each man's voice upon the darkness dies remember you have toiled for something splendid and keep the vision stainless in your eyes. Be faithful to yourselves and those you fought for, great hearts and general hopes and patient hands. Swear that you'll never lose the ends you've sought for till brotherhood unites the martyred lands. Now when reactions' blood-stained flags deride you and the old ignorant gods for an hour prevail, all that is noble and strong is ranked beside you and you are crowned with victory though you fail. Inspiration from Russia. In February 1917, Russia had overthrown its despotic Tsar. Its new government disappointed Russian workers, who took power under the leadership of the Bolsheviks in a second revolution in October. The new Bolshevik government abolished many social distinctions, separated church and state, extended democracy, and took Russia out of the war. The Russian Revolution inspired workers and socialists around the world. Militarists and mutineers. The Great War was finally over, after four years of dreadful suffering and loss of life. Now the soldiers expected to go home to their civilian lives. Lloyd George had adduced them to vote for him by pledging rapid demobilisation. But the army needed troops to defend Britain's imperial possessions, and the war was not officially over yet. Lloyd George backpedalled on his promises, and a Secretary of State for War, Winston Churchill, vigorously resisted demobilisation, always keen for the next chance to go to war. The government knew that demobbed soldiers would return to poverty and unemployment and feared that they would rebel, remembering the masterless men who had returned from the Napoleonic Wars. So the government made the soldiers stay in the army, allowing only a trickle of demobilisation. But its fears came true anyway. Just three days into the new year, soldiers in Kent rebelled, as described in the socialist newspaper The Herald. Quote, after the official rabelais had been sounded at Folkestone on January the 3rd, there was no parade, for the sufficient reason that no one turned up. But on their own signal, three taps of a drum, two thousand men, unarmed and in perfect order, demonstrated the fact that they were fed up. Their plan of action had been agreed upon the night before. No military boat should be allowed to leave Folkestone for France that day or any day until they were guaranteed their freedom. It was sheer, flat, brazen, open unsuccessful mutiny. They knew it and they did it. End quote. Within days, soldiers at Dover, Shoreham, Shortlands, and other ports followed suit. On the eighth of January, delegates from the soldiers' rebellions arrived in London to press their case to Lloyd George. Two days previously, the Prime Minister had been visited by men from the Army Service Corps in Isleworth, West London, who had commandeered army vehicles and driven them to Downing Street. The soldiers enjoyed support from a public which knew the justice of their cause and included their friends and families. Lloyd George made a desperate appeal for calm and allowed some concessions and some demobilisation. The soldiers had another reason for refusing to fight. Their commanders were trying to send them into battle against Russia but they did not want to attack the Bolshevik-led workers' state. At British bases in France, including Calais, Boulogne and Dunkirk, soldiers refused to go to the Russian front. Up to 20,000 men formed the Calais Soldiers and Sailors Association and received welcome support from French railway workers who refused to transport British troops to military engagements. On the 13th of January, sailors hoisted the red flag during a mutiny on HMS Kilbride at Milford Haven in Wales. Even soldiers already at war pulled themselves out of the fighting. In February, two Yorkshire regiment sergeants refused orders to lead their men to attack the Russian town of Siletsko. A court-martial sentenced them to death, but, fearing a backlash, the authorities allowed them to serve time in prison instead. More rebellions took place in March. At Kinmel camp in Wales, 15,000 Canadian soldiers refused orders, elected delegates and looted shops around their camp, shouting, Come on the Bolsheviks, and carrying red flags improvised from curtains and billiards queues. When they attacked the officers' quarters, fighting started, including with guns and bayonets, killing 5 and injuring 20. In London, 300 people protested at the arrest of 3 US servicemen for playing dice in the street. When 2 were arrested for protesting, the crowd attacked Bow Street Police Station in what became known as the Strand Riot. In May, reservists recalled to the army rioted in Aldershot and in June 400 soldiers attacked Epsom Police Station after one of their number was arrested while drunk. A police sergeant was killed in the fighting. The British government knew that it could not rely on soldiers to follow orders without question, especially in their own communities. So when it wanted to crush a powerful strike in Glasgow, it sent troops from outside. Revolt on the Clyde In 1919, Glasgow was in the grip of a general strike. The strike leaders saw it purely in terms of a fight for the 40-hour week, but the press treated it as a threat to the capitalist order of society itself. The press was right. Working-class living conditions were grim. Wages had not kept up with wartime inflation. House building and repairs had practically ceased, leading to housing shortage and worse slums than ever. Before 1914, the working week had been 54 hours. In wartime, this was extended to a 12-hour day, plus weekends. In four weeks at the turn of 1918 and 1919, Glasgow unemployment virtually doubled. The Strike Bulletin wrote, quote, The workers dread unemployment as worse than an epidemic of fever. We know what it means. Low wages, hunger, soup kitchens, doles, evictions, fireless crates, ragged clothes, weeping children, frantic women, desperate men. Unemployment is the workers' hell. End quote. On Saturday the 18th of January, 500 delegates attended a meeting organised by the Clyde Workers' Committee, Glasgow Trades Council, Scottish TUC, an Amalgamated Society of Engineers ASE District Committee, voting to demand a forty hour working week and begin a general strike on Monday the twenty seventh of January. The response was overwhelming. All the main factories shut down. After a mass meeting in Saint Andrew's Hall, thousands marched through the city centre to a rally in George Square. The evening Times reported that a few enthusiasts raised a red flag in front of the municipal buildings to cheers from the crowd. The few enthusiasts expressed the logic of the strike, a challenge to capitalist authority. The strikes denied the authorities their right to control society and establish its own rule and administration. Most industry was shut, but the strike movement agreed exemptions. Hospital workers were told to remain at work, and disabled ex-soldiers were given the option to do so. Private property was challenged by the rent strike held in parallel with the industrial strike. Despite official bans, Mass meetings were held in George Square every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. Thousands assembled in local meeting places and marched to the square. The police were powerless to intervene. The strike movement controlled traffic, issuing permits to drivers conveying fuel to schools. Strikers cut the ropes connecting trolleys to overhead lines, so hundreds of trams blocked routes. Mass pickets brought more workers into the strike. The strike's district committees each had ten members, plus a delegate to the strike Central Information Bureau. Each had a speaker's subcommittee of three, and a messenger's service of six. They discussed the strike, built support, and between them distributed 20,000 copies of the strike bulletin each day. Two power structures existed in parallel and in conflict. The power of the working class, organised through the strike committees, and the power of the ruling class, weakened but still a force. The ruling class realised the revolutionary nature of the general strike, and fought to restore capitalist normality. It did not hesitate to resort to violence when its power was threatened. Willie Gallagher described Bloody Friday, the 31st of January, in George Square. Quote Suddenly, without warning of any kind, a signal was given and the police made a savage and totally unexpected assault on the rear of the meeting, smashing right and left with their batons, utterly regardless of whom or what they hit. End quote. Police charges were driven off, so the government sent in the army. Howitzers were positioned in the city chambers, the cattle market made into a tank depot, machine guns posted on the top of the hotels. Strike leaders were arrested, and new rules legalised whatever violence the troops needed. The evening news claimed that the troops had been sent in to protect life and property from the rabble. Labour MPs condemned unconstitutional methods by workers. Union leaders ordered their members to stay at work and refuse strike pay. Miners officials in Canberra slang asked for police protection for scabs. Scottish miners' executive members publicly denounced the strike. The strike ended after 16 days, on February 11th. There had been a gradual return to work, and the only alternative to ending the strike would have been to leave the remaining strikers isolated, easy prey to victimisation. Resolute strike leadership would have escalated the struggle into a direct confrontation for power, but many leaders feared the social upheavals unleashed by the strike. David Kirkwood had a reputation as a left-winger, and declared himself a revolutionary socialist. But he said that the strike was not revolutionary, so everyone should concentrate on no more than getting a shorter working week. Manny Shinwell, chair of Glasgow Trades Council, had the same myopic view of the strike. He did a private deal with the Lord Provost, whereby the latter would appeal for government intervention, whilst Shinwell would dampen down the strike movement until the Lord Provost got a reply. Many strike leaders were genuinely hostile to capitalism and committed to socialism, but were influenced by the idea that the working class, if educated, would spontaneously overthrow capitalism. They were unable to build on the dual power situation and raise the conflict to a conscious revolutionary confrontation with the state. Gallagher later wrote, quote, We were carrying on a strike when we ought to have been making a revolution. Such was the condition of our leadership. We were watching one another and waiting for and wondering what was going to happen. A rising should have taken place. The workers were ready and able to effect it. The leadership had never thought of it. The Strike Bulletin told its readers that, The knowledge we have gained will not be wasted. Be ready. In both its strengths and weaknesses, the strike contains a wealth of lessons for the labour movement of today.